may be seated. And uh, the kids, fourth grade and younger, can be dismissed to the children's service right over here. To your left, my right. Y'all go in there and have a great time learning about Jesus. We'll try to do the same in here as we continue in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, our scripture this morning is Lindsay Hoffler. Come on up here, Miss Lindsay. We're so glad that you're here. And it, is it Hoffler or Heffler? Hoffler. Hoffler, okay. You're right. Because I, I thought somebody said Heffler, and I'm like, maybe I've been saying it wrong. They were wrong. We were right, as usual. There we go. All right. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 20, and there you go. Now, before you, I'd like to ask, before you read for us, tell us just a little bit about yourself, since a lot of people don't know you yet. Oh, hi. <laughs> I didn't hear you. Thank you. Um, my name is Lindsay, and I'm here with my family. Sophia is my daughter. Ed is my hus husband. Wave, guys, so they can. There you go. Hi. Um, we're new to this wonderful church. Originally from San, we moved from San Antonio, so we've only been here in this area since August. Um, I work for Southwest Airlines. Uh, let's see. What else? I guess. Any other questions? You can ask me after church. How's that? Because I can't think of anything. I'm going to hold this in my hand because it'll make it just a little There we go. Cool. <clears throat> hold it close. All right. Can you all hear me? Yes, ma'am. All right. When you go out to war against our enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, O hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for the battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruits? Let him go back. Oops. My bad. It's all good. Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellow melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peacefully, peacefully, peaceably, and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. 
but the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil you shall take as plunder for yourself. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that you Thus, you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for your inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Brezites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that, you, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees, but wielding an ax against them, by wielding an ax against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that you should besiege, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food, you may destroy and cut down, that you may build seg works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Amen. Thank you very much, Lindsay. Great job. <clears throat> We're thankful for the word of God. So let's put all that in context, because context is everything. Here, the nation of Israel is who God is speaking to, and they are about to go into the land of Canaan, the promised land, which there are seven tribes there that are all evil. What kind of evil are they doing? They're sacrificing their children. They are brutalizing women and little girls. They're doing all kinds of horrific things. And so God is going to use Israel to discipline them and to destroy them, and at the same time give them the promised land. So it's not... Here's these people committing genocide against innocent people. That's not what's happening at all. What's happening here is God is fulfilling his promises by blessing Israel and also by punishing the evildoers. But then there's two types of nations that they would encounter. One is the nations, the seven tribes that are in the, where their land, but then there's other nations around the land that might see them as a threat and go to attack them. And so there's, he offers two different plans for each one of the nations. We'll talk more about that. But we're... we're we are talking about the nation of Israel. So any one of these commands, you can't say, well, we need to go do that. No, he's not talking to the United States of America. He's talking under a theocracy where God is their king, and this is the rules of warfare. This is what he's encouraging them to do, and commanding them to do, I should say. And this is bringing it up to a whole new level. Up to this point, the whole world was pretty much barbaric, that when you, just, when you went to war against any nation, you raped and pillaged everybody, you took everything, you destroyed everything. And here he's saying, no, in some cases you need to offer them terms of peace. That was unheard of in those days. You basically, it was a scorched earth policy to where you just destroyed and burnt everything, including the trees. That's why you see these, the last two verses about the trees. So this is a totally different new type of warfare that is being uh, prescribed here by God. And you may say, well, is war good? No, war is necessary. What do you do to stop the Hitlers and the Saddam Husseins and the Mao tongues of the world? You can't do anything but go to war. So there are just wars to stop evil. 
Some Christians claim to be pacifists where they say, well, we're not going to fight at all. Well, what would have happened if, if we had had that attitude during World War II when Japan was attacking us and Hitler was taking over Europe? We just sit back and we take it? No. Even Jesus himself, when he was in the garden praying, he asked them, how many swords do you have? And they said, we have two. And he goes, good enough. He didn't want any on his own. He wanted them to be able to defend themselves because they weren't supposed to die for the sins of the world. He was. He wanted them to be able to protect themselves. So there's nothing unbiblical about protecting yourself, yourself, your family, or even your nation. There's nothing unbiblical about that. You don't want to use war as a tool to gain might and power, which unfortunately most of the wars of this world have been for just that. They've been about oil, about gold, about power, and, and so forth. And this is, God's saying it's not about any of those things. And what we see here is this is the nation of Israel. He's taken them into this land. Here's the, here's the nation of Israel here today. And let me tell you, without any uh, hesitation or any apology, I believe that Israel is still God's chosen people ethnically and nationally. Christians are God's chosen people spiritually. But God has always had a plan for Israel and will have a plan for Israel in the future. When Jesus comes, who Jesus, by the way, is what? A Jew. He's going to set up the new Jerusalem. His capital city is going to come down from, this, from heaven. And he's going to place it there over this land. And he's going to rule the world and this will be his capital. So he's always had a plan for Israel. Israel right now, just like he predicted, has gone astray from him, which they did all throughout the history, right? And right now he says that I'm going to go away for two days, the equivalent of 2,000 years, and Israel will go straight, but I will bring them back to the land. The fact that Israel is in Israel today after being scattered over the whole planet in 1948, just like the Bible prophesied, God brought all the Jews from around the world back to this place and gave them their country back. That's a miracle by anybody's measurement. But if you've been watching the news this week, um, in fact, I didn't even know this was happening because I, I try not to watch the news, but someone in Life Group told me about this and I didn't even know Israel was being attacked by Hamas, which... We fully expected that because the current administration, and I'm not trying to be political here, they are not very pro-Israel. So as soon as they came into be, to place, they knew, okay, now's the time to attack Israel because it, it, they're not, this, Biden and all that is just not very not pro-Israel. Again, I'm not touting Trump or knocking Biden. I'm just saying what the facts are that he, it, they saw this opportunity to attack, and that's what's happening. And Israel is just defending themselves. Of course, you could read the watch the news, it's like Israel's attacking everybody else and killing innocent people. Well, Hamas fires their rockets from buildings with women and children in it on purpose. They use them as what's called human shields. And did you know that Israel actually has the courtesy to pick up the phone and call Hamas and say, we're about to bomb this building at this street at this address. Please clear it out. They actually have the courtesy of them because they don't want to kill women and children. Hamas is bombing what? Schools? synagogues, cafes, and malls. They're purposely bombing where there's women and children. Israel's trying to take out their, their, war, their rockets, and they're even warning them, get everybody out, because all we want to do is destroy the rockets, not the people. Two years ago, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been the longest prime minister of Israel, he's been prime minister since 2009, two years ago he gave this speech, which really could be today. And let me say this also. Is Israel perfect? No. They do a lot of unethical things. They, they also do things that would be considered war crimes and all that. So I'm not trying to say they're perfect. And I'm also not trying to say Benjamin Netanyahu's perfect. 
I am trying to say, though, that Israel, you can see the hand of God working in them, whether they realize it or not. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu, listen, and I don't, I don't normally like to read this much, but this is astounding. He, you, there's so much scriptural, whether he even knows this or not, there's so many things that he's saying in this speech that are scriptural. But think about him reading this today. This is how Moses and Aaron and Joshua and all the leaders, leaders of Israel felt back then. Okay, so kind of think of it with that mindset. He said, only 70 years ago, talking about from today, back when the Holocaust happened, the Jews were taken like sleep sheep to the slaughter. So over 6 million Jews were killed because they were Jewish, period. Jews have always been the most persecuted people on the planet because they are, are God's chosen people and Satan wants to wipe them out. 60 years ago, no country, no army, seven Arab countries declared war on the small Jewish state. To get put in perspective, Israel is slightly bigger than the state of New Jersey, okay? To put another perspective, there's about 350 million people in America. There's not, only 9 million in Israel. So we're talking, you know, not, not like basically one of our smaller states. We were 650,000 Jews against many millions in the Arab world. There was no strong Israel defense force, no powerful air force to save us, but only brave Jewish people to go nowhere, with nowhere else to go. Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, Libya, Saudi Arabia, all attacked us at the same time. The country that the United Nations gave us was 65% desert. 35 years ago, we fought the three most powerful armies in the Middle East and we swept them in six days. We fought against various coalitions of Arab countries which had modern armies and Soviet weapons and we have always beaten them. Today we have a state or a country, we have an army, a powerful air force, a state-of-the-art economy which exports worth billions of dollars, Intel, Microsoft, IBM and many high-tech companies develop cutting-edge products here in Israel. Our doctors receive awards for medical research, we make the desert bloom, does that sound familiar? God prophesied in the book of Isaiah that I will cause the desert to bloom. And when he fulfilled the, this prophecy of bringing Israel back in the land. And sell oranges and flowers, vegetables all over the world. Israel has sent its own satellites into space. Three satellites at the same time. We are proud to be ranked the same as the U.S. with 320 million. Russia, 200 million. China, 1.3 billion. Europeans, France, Great Britain, Germany with 350 million. The only countries in the world to send objects into space. And again, Israel only has 9 million. And to say that only 60 years ago we were led, ashamed and hopeless, to the slaughter. We have experienced the smoking ruins of Europe. We have won our wars here in Israel with less than nothing. We built our little empire, as people call it, from, no, from nothing. Who's Hamas to scare me, to terrify me? You make me laugh. Passover was celebrated. Let, let's not forget what Passover is. We survived Pharaoh. We survived the Greeks. We survived the Romans. We survived the Inquisition of Spain. We have the pogroms in Russia. We survived Hitler. We survived the Germans. We survived the Holocaust. We survived the army, armies of seven Arab nations. We survived Saddam. We will survive the enemies present. Think of any time in human history, think about it for us, the Jewish people, the situation has never been better. And let's face the world. Let us remember all nations, empires, or cultures let us remember um, all nations, empires, cultures who once tried to destroy us no longer exist today. We still live. Egypt, Babylon, the Greeks, 
Alexander of Macedonia? The Romans? Does anybody still speak Latin these days? The Third Reich. And look at us, the slaves of Egypt, the people of Moses, the nation of the Bible, we are still here. And that, again, not to be meant political. There's no way any country on this planet would have survived thousands of years of this brutal hostility unless God's hand was preserving them. So, you know, it's interesting. People can talk politics and they'll talk about topics like, let's say, economics. And I know a little bit about economics, but they might be talking about some economic theory. And I'm like, is that true? Is that right? You know, I don't know if it's right. But then if I find out that they are anti-Bible, anti-Israel, anti-Christian, I'm like, then they're probably wrong on that economic theory. There's so many things when people are running for president or for Congress or for Senate that we didn't know nothing about. But you know how you know if you can trust them? Do they side with the Lord on other issues? That doesn't mean they're perfect, but that means if you don't know what they're talking about, then maybe you would side with someone and give them the benefit of the doubt versus someone else. It says in Hebrew, it's still the official language of the state of Israel. Did you know that when Israel was dispersed, Jews all over the world began to speak the language of where they were, and nobody spoke Hebrew. Hebrew was like Latin, it died. But then when they all came back to Israel, there was one rabbi who studied ancient Hebrew and said, I will not, do not talk to me unless you speak to me in Hebrew. And from that one rabbi, everybody started to learn Hebrew over and over again. Then they started teaching it in the schools. And now Hebrew, again, the language is, was even restored. It's, it's just amazing. It says, Arabs don't know yet, but they will learn that there is a God. As long as we keep our identity, we are forever. So forgive us for not worrying, not to cry, not to be afraid. Things are fine here. They could have certainly be, get better. However, don't believe the media. They don't tell you a lot of good things about Israel. Celebrations continue to take place in Israel. People continue to live. People coming out. People continue to see friends. Some claim our morale is low. So what? Only because we mourn our deaths while our enemies rejoice in the blood shed in war. That is why we will win in the end. The God of Israel created the heavens and the earth. The guardian of Israel never slumbers or sleeps. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as he quotes from Psalm 121, verse 4. Very powerful speech. Again, two years ago, he could just read it again today because the same thing applies. So the Bible clearly teaches that Israel is still God's chosen people, ethnically and nationally. That's important. Ethnically and nationally. Okay? They're not God's chosen people if they don't, reject, if they don't accept Jesus Christ. There's not two plans of salvation. I've heard some preachers, not many, but some preachers preach, well, Israel is automatically saved because they're Jews. The rest of the world needs to accept Jesus. No, that everybody needs to accept Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. And it says, and prophecy says that Christ will return and set up his kingdom there. Christians are God's chosen people spiritually and are part of his kingdom now. So when Paul says, he says on one hand, he says, my prayer for Israel is that they would be saved. Who's he talking about? Ethnic, national Israel. But then he says, who is a true Jew, but one who's accepted Christ as a savior? So there's ethnic Jews, and then there's spiritual Jews. And the Bible makes the, both of them very clear. Many people want to mix the two and say, well, the church was the church in the Old Testament was Israel, and now the church today is all believers in Jesus Christ, and then there's no more Israel. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The two are clearly not the same. So what happened to Israel was written for our example so we may know how to fight our own battles. Not just today's battles, but more specifically, what happened in the Old Testament that we're reading about here in Deuteronomy. 1 Corinthians 10.1 says, Our fathers, talking about our Jewish ancestors, 
this is Paul speaking, who's Jewish. He said, we're all under the cloud. Remember, they let, were led by cloud by the day. They all passed through the sea. What sea? The Red Sea, right? Remember, Moses parted the waters. And they were all baptized or basically placed into Moses or under his leadership and placed under the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, which was what? Manna, good job. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So remember, Moses struck the rock, and the water came forth. And Jesus was struck for our sins to give the living water to all who believe. That was a picture of Jesus Christ in the desert there. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not, well, was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Remember, they wandered for 40 years because they could not obey God. Now, these things took place as examples for who? For us, okay? So everything we read in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all throughout the Old Testament, they are examples for you and I to follow. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 20, it's talking about warfare. And so there's examples that we can follow, not talking about literal warfare necessarily, but talking about your own spiritual battles. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 20, I want to give you five quick points, okay? Number one, we need not fear for God is with us. We need, not, we need God's leaders to encourage us. We need commitment. Com, I mean, we, we need the committed alongside of us. We need not compromise God's plan for us. And we need common sense to guide us. So there's the five points here from Deuteronomy 20. Let's talk about the first one. We need not fear because God is with us. He says in verse 1, he says, when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots, an army larger than your own. So this other army has better weapons. They've got lots more, hundreds of years of experience fighting battles. They're much bigger. And what's God saying? Don't be afraid. <laughs> I got this. And yet you will face situations in your life where it looks impossible. It looks like, how are we going to pay the bills? <laughs> How will we ever have a child? You know, how is this marriage ever going to be saved? You put on your list what your big mountain is, that, what the big battle that you have to fight. And God says, don't be afraid. Now, this is not the power of positive thinking. Don't be afraid just because you, you know, positive thinking gets you through. The reason is because the Lord, your God, is with you. Without the Lord, your God, life is scary. Even the littlest things, oh, I've got this. Trying to do it without the Lord, it could be scary. But God, think about this. God wants life to be challenging. In America, we do everything we can to make life not challenging. We want to put out plenty of money away for retirement, which I think you should, so that we don't have to worry then. You know, we want to put a security in our system, in our house, and I'm not against that either, so we don't have to worry about that. And we want to get to where we can just totally relax. And God doesn't want us to totally relax. He wants us to be challenged all the time. By, and there's going to be things that he brings into your life that are challenging, that look so big. But here's the thing. They're so big that when you win, you're like, that was God. That was not me. That was God. That's what he wants. So don't try to avoid those situations. There may be a job that you are being thrown into that you think, I can't do this. I don't know. I don't have the experience. Let God be with you. Let God give you the, the, the clarity of mind to work your way through that. And he says, hey, I want to remind you, I'm the same God they brought you out of Egypt. Remember, not just one plague, not just two or three or four, but how many? Ten amazing plagues, each one directed at a different God of Egypt, showing that 
they're not gods, I'm God. And that I, if I can do all this, and I can part the Red Sea, I can take care of these armies. So don't be afraid, because this it's a different set of challenges. And again, these people came from slavery, and now they're marching, they, they, they just were Bedouins roaming in the, in the desert, and now all of a sudden there's supposed to be an army to take on these armies with chariots and horses? What was the difference maker? It was God. And you know what's gonna make the difference in your life when you're in your deepest, darkest times? The presence of God. The presence of God. That's why we sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And at the presence of the Lord. And that's not just for Sundays. I have an alarm on my phone that goes off every morning and it says, thank you, Jesus, for this precious life. Remind me all day of your presence with me. That alarm goes off every day. And I read that every day because I want to remind myself, I'm not just walking through life by myself. I have the Jesus Christ walking alongside me. Now, that does two things for me. It makes me afraid to do something stupid because <laughs> Jesus is right there. And I don't want to do something stupid in front of Jesus. And the opportunity to do something stupid when Jesus isn't there will never come. So I never try to do anything stupid. The other thing is, it's not just a threat against doing stupid. It's a comfort through going through hard times. Knowing that he's there with me. Would, would he let me go through anything that I can't handle? That he won't handle for me. That he won't walk and guide through. He doesn't avoid the valley of the shadow of death, does he? He says, yea, that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because what? You are with me. And he has done things in the past. Um, so here's three things from that. First of all, God's perspective refocuses us. Remember the 10 spies? Remember there was 12 that went in. Only two believed that they could do it, right? Other 10 were like, oh no, no, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. We're so small. You see, their eyes were on the enemy and them in proportion to their enemy. And yeah, they, they were. The, the enemy was big. They were giants, okay? But what they should have been looking at was the size of the giants versus the size of their God. It's all about perspective. David went up to his brothers in battle against the Philistines, and he's like, what's going on here? Why are we letting this guy blaspheme our God? And they're like, well, look, have you seen how big he is? And they're like, he's so big, we can't win. And David's like, he's so big, I can't miss. <laughs> and he hits him right between the eyes and kills him. And it's all about perspective. If God is on your side, everything changes. The second thing we learn from this passage is God's presence reassures us, knowing that the Lord is there with you. And how do we know that the Lord is with us? Let me give you three, a few things here. Number one, God's word. God's word. That is number one. If you're not spending time in God's word on a daily basis, you are not experiencing the fullness of the presence of God like you should and like you could. Okay? Number two, God's Holy Spirit. You need to be listening to the Holy Spirit who primarily speaks and convicts through the Word of God. And He orchestrates and he, he steers history. Be, pay attention to the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Number three, be, be around God's people. God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. The more you're around the people of God, that's why life group is so important, that you're in life group and you're around the people of God and you're learning and that iron sharpening iron and you're experiencing the presence of God, you know this isn't just some religious thing. I really have people here with me who believe in the same Jesus. And what are we? We are the body of Christ. So when I'm around God's people, it's like Jesus is giving me a hug. It's like Jesus is holding my hand or putting his arm around my shoulder. That encouragement that we give to one another, we truly are the feet and the hands of our Savior. And the third thing is God's past reminds us. God's past reminds us of all the things that God did for us. He says, the Lord your God is with you the same God that brought you up out of Egypt. 
So whenever you get discouraged, maybe, maybe somebody in this room is going through a downtime right now. Maybe life is getting very challenging and you're feeling overwhelmed and maybe even de- discouraged or depressed. What God's saying is you need to look back. When did, has God helped me in the past? Look at all the great things he's done for me in the past. Will he not do them for me today? Did he all of a sudden just go away and leave me stranded? Or is he with me, the same God, the same God yesterday, today, and forever? Remember these three things. So the second point is when we need God's leaders to encourage us. God's leaders to encourage us. It says when you draw near to the battle, this is interesting, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people. Notice the priest wasn't 40 miles away and said, now guys, go get them. <laughs> the priest had to go right up to the edge of the battle with them. So the priest really needed to believe what he was saying because the battle, it was about to go down. And he's not walking around with a sword in his hand, okay? He really has to believe that these guys are going to defend him while he stays there and prays as they go in the battle. So when they draw near to the battle, the priest will come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for the battle against your enemies. And you could almost insert Netanyahu's speech right into here. God has protected us. God has brought us through Hitler. He's brought us through the Russians. He's brought us through the, the Inquisition. He's brought us through everything. And what, what was Netanyahu, not Netanyahu doing? He was rehearsing history saying the same God that's brought us this far will, will see us through. And that's exactly what the priests were supposed to do. And all of us need spiritual leaders in our life speaking into our lives encouragement. You can do this. You got a new job? You can do it. Are you newly married? You can do this. You got a new baby? You can do it. We need to, you, your, your mom passed away? You can do this. You can make it through. We all need a spiritual leadership. In fact, when you see people who say, well, I, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in organized religion. What you're saying is, I don't need a pastor. I don't need other brothers and sisters in Christ telling me and encouraging me. I can encourage myself. No. I, I'm a pastor. And you know what I need? I need other pastors. I meet with other pastors regularly to encourage me, to help me. I talk to other pastors on the phone. And I, I need you, not just other, other people. But I need people above me that are more godly than I am, more spiritual than I am, that I can be encouraged by. Every one of you need that. And to say that you don't is pride. In fact, that you are not only, not only is pride, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation. Who does the wolf go after? The sheep that's by itself, away from the flock. We need to be careful that we're not setting ourselves up. We, we need leaders like the priest had there. He said, let not your hearts faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. The Lord, your God, he who is, goes with you, fights for you against your enemies to give you the victory. So God is with you, he's fighting for you, and he's giving you. God is in every situation. Now, sometimes you would think, well, then why, why didn't we just stand here and let God destroy them? And he could. And there was actually times that he did. Okay? But there's also, most of the time, God wants to use us. You know, instead of Jesus rising from the dead and saying, instead of saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel, he said, you know what? You guys sit back. I'm going to put the gospel all over the skies, and I'm just going to have satellites broadcast it from all over the world. He could have done that. But think about this. He chooses to use you. Me? Does God know how much I've messed up? Does God know that I'm not very smart, and I don't have a lot of money, I don't, I don't, I'm not very good looking, or whatever your excuse may be? But God wants to use you anyway. He uses jars of clay. And the question this morning is, are you letting him use you? 
Are you, are you being like many people in the Old Testament? Say, oh, not me. Moses, you know, like, I, I, I can't speak. I stutter, you know. Are you saying, God couldn't use me? God wants to use you. God will use you. You know, the, there's a time in the Bible where there was a priest that was giving a charge. His name was Phineas. And uh, no, no, not this Phineas. No, not him. Okay, but there is a different Phineas. That, for some of you got that. Numbers 31.6, and Moses sent them to war and a thousand from each tribe together with Phineas, the son of Eleazar. You didn't know that cartoon was actually from the Bible, right? Um, it's pretty funny too if you want to check it out. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. This is what Paul is telling young Pastor Timothy, this is your job. And this is Gary's job. My job is not to preach my opinion, not to tell my stories that are not so funny, not to do all these crazy things. My job is to go through the word of God and to make Revolution Church understand the word of God more every week than they ever have before. And my job is to do it in season or out of season. That means when it's popular or when it's not. You know, 20 years ago, preaching the word of God was in season. It was very popular and cool to do that. Today, not so popular, okay? You have a lot of, even pastors running from the faith and, and deconstructing their faith and doing all kinds of crazy things and, and preaching the word of God, preaching truth, preaching moral absolutes. It's not popular. It's not politically correct. And there's brothers and sisters in Christ all over the planet going to jail because they're doing it because it's not popular. And even reprove, which means tell you, hey, that's wrong. Rebuke means don't do that. And exhort, here's what you should be doing. That's what should be involved in the preaching. So sometimes if it seems like I'm stepping on your toes, I'm just trying to do what, what Paul told Timothy, young preacher, to do. And he goes on to say, so with complete patience and teaching. Pray for me that I do it with patience and my teaching would be clear. He says, for the time is coming. I think we could even say it, it's here. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. Think about that. You know, you know if I have an itch, when, it's, when you scratch it, you're like, ah, it feels good. So what kind of preaching do they want? Feel good preaching. You know, I don't feel right about this situation. Pastor, would you scratch this? Oh, yeah, that feels good. And that's not the kind of preaching Paul says we should be preaching. That's what false prophets do. They preach things that make you feel good. I'm not saying a, a message can never be encouraging, but it shouldn't be for feel good only. Does that make sense? It's like when you are sick and you go to the doctor and the doctor injects something in your arm to make you feel better. The injection hurts, but that afternoon you're starting to feel like you're recovering. You feel better later. So sometimes you've got to have an ouch in order to have an ah, okay? And that's what our job is with the Word of God. It says they will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And, that, you know, you see this all over now. Come to this conference or whatever, pastor so-and-so, pastor so-and-so, all these different preachers and whatever. Come here, all these teachers, and they're like collecting all these teachers. Yeah, and I listen to so-and-so and so-and-so. And I'm not saying don't listen to other pastors. In fact, you hear me say the opposite all the time. I'm saying be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. And it says, and they will what? Turn away. The word, mean, the word here in, in Greek is one word, apostasia. It means falling away from the faith. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so you got a lot of people saying they teach the Bible, but really what they do is they take a few verses here and there and then they fill it in with human philosophy. What's the latest psychology? And they're really not teaching the Bible verse by verse and, and walking through the scriptures and letting the word of God speak. So my, my challenge to you this morning is to pray for me as I work to encourage you with the consistent teaching of the truth of the word of God.
We all need, and so if, if I was to have a heart attack this week, you guys need to make sure you get a, te- a preacher who teaches the word of God because everybody needs encouragement. And if God moves you to Michigan or Louisiana or wherever God takes you, make sure you find a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. In fact, many of you know one of my great hobbies is because Houston is such a transient society. We have people who come here and then move. and come move. Every time someone has to leave Revolution Church, one of my hobbies is to find them a Bible-believing church. So like recently, you know, Ruth Mieles and her son moved to Florida. And so I'm like sending her a list of churches and all that stuff. And then uh, Jessica Hatch and her husband moved up to Colorado. It's a, it's, and so if you ever have to move, let me know. I want to find you a church because that's how much I, I, I love you, whether you're here or somewhere else. I want to make sure that you're living the truth and you're not really going to be able to equip to live the truth unless someone is teaching you the truth. So pray for me in that regard. So God is with us. God's leaders encourage us. But number three, we need the committed alongside us. We need committed people alongside of us. Notice he gave, it's interesting here, and I, I don't really know how to read Moses in this situation. We really, we're kind of left to speculation. He gives four exemptions. He said, we're going to go into battle, but you don't have to go, guys, if one of these four apply to you. If you got a new house, go home and dedicate it. You know, Jews were very big about dedicating their home, kind of like a housewarming, you know, party and things like that. If you got a new vineyard, yeah, go, go take care of your vineyard. Oh, you got a new wife? In fact, in the Bible, when you got married, you took a year off. How cool is that? You talk about a honeymoon. One year? That was cool. They saved up enough money where that couple did not have to work for a year. They just enjoyed each other's company, getting to know each other. And what was interesting is the fourth thing was basically a new spine. If you're afraid, if you're a coward, if you're fearful, go home. You know, so if, if any one of these four applied to you. And I look at this and think, what, what, what was he doing here? I mean, really, was, was he just giving them an easy out? Like some guys wouldn't admit that they didn't have a spine. So it's, oh yeah, yeah, I got, it's not because I'm afraid, but I got a new house, so see ya. Or I, I got a new wife. Was he giving them an easy out? Maybe. Or was it because these things were so important that, that the economy back in Jerusalem and the economy back in the homeland had to stay strong so people had to take care of their houses, their vineyards, their wives and all that stuff. And was it because family was that important? Maybe that's what it was. I, I really don't know. But... Um, he tells the fearful to go home. He says right there in the passage, he said, lest if your heart melts, lest your, your brother's fighting alongside you, their heart melt also. My dad was the president of Optimus, the Optimus Club. I don't know if you ever heard of that. It's kind of like Kiwanis or the Lions Club or the Rotary Club. I don't know if it's still around. Maybe it's more popular back east. Um, but I had this little sign that my dad gave me and I put it by my light switch and said this, that attitudes are contagious. Are yours worth catching? Think about that in, in Revolution Church. What if everybody had your attitude? What if everybody was right now like this going, you know? I, first of all, I would, I would walk out that door right there. But that's what that door is there for, for if I, I make a quick exit. I'd be done. I'd say, okay, I'm done. What if, what if everybody sang like you sang? Would it be loud in here or we can not hear anything or nothing? What, what if everybody gave like you gave? What if everybody served like you served? Did you know that other people around you, whether you want to think it or not, are watching you and you, you are being motivated, people are being motivated by you or discouraged by you. So your attitude really is contagious. And that's what, that's what Moses is saying here. Hey, if you're afraid, you need to go. Because think about this, in battle, 
And let's say they're marching forward and they're firing their arrows and they're doing whatever they're doing. And all of a sudden, two guys take off running. Some other guys might be like, wait a minute, did they see something I didn't see? Did someone sound a retreat and I didn't hear it? And all of a sudden, guys who were fighting all of a sudden start taking off. And next thing you know, it spreads and everybody's taken off. It all could start with by one person. I remember years ago, I was at an Astros game when they weren't so good. And, uh, and, but we were actually had two men on base and, and the score, the tying run on, at the plate. And the crowd was just dead. Nobody was cheering or doing anything because Astros games used to be more boring than they are right now. And uh, it, anyway, don't get me started on that. I'm wearing an Astros jersey, okay? They're winning lately. But anyway, so I, told, I went there with my daughter, Jessica, my biological Jessica. And I told her, I said, watch this. And I went. And I just kept doing it. And next thing you know, it took about three or four minutes, but the whole stadium was doing it. And I was just one guy amongst maybe 10,000 because it was on a big crowd that day. But eventually the whole crowd started clapping. And I told my daughter, I said, what you do can spread. And you can make an impact on the world. Even though you think you're one in 10,000, you can make a difference. What is your attitude when you are part of the body of Christ at Revolution? So why were these exemptions there? And again, I probably jumped ahead on this. Um, to sh number one, it was to show what's valuable, possibly. Your home is valuable, your wife is valuable, the community is valuable. I believe also is to eliminate the fearful because attitudes are contagious. But also the main reason though, I believe it was to unite the committed. After everybody left, maybe it was because of flimsy excuses. And there could have been guys who said, yeah, I got a new house, but I love my country. And yeah, I got a new wife, but I think I'll stay here and fight for her than go be with her. And all those guys rally together and they're like, we can do this. We can do this. And, and, and there's a, something that's amazing. And see, today, because we're not in warfare, what do men do to do this? They play sports <laughs> or they do things together where they build buildings. They do stuff where there's teamwork, you know. And, and you, you look at a football game and you, you see the pregame yelling and the chanting. It's just what they did like in Braveheart. They did it, except they're not, nobody's going to die in this situation. And that's why God's created us that way, because we need to work together. We need to be united with committed people. And again, that's, that's why... At Revolution Church, we try to keep the bar high. Membership at Revolution Church is not just fill out a card and shake the pastor's hand, you're a member. There's a covenant that you have to agree to. It's a lifestyle. It's a theological commitment. It's something that's meant to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. And, we, and when people come and they're not sure if they want that, that's great. Please keep coming. Come for weeks. Come for months if you have to. Come for a year if you have to. Okay. But we want the level of followers of Jesus Christ to be e not to be easy, but to be a challenge, but with God's help that we all would do it. And I'll tell you what, when you surround yourself with committed people, it makes you want to live for Jesus. It makes you just want to be challenged about the week. And, you, and when you are at your lowest time on Thursday morning, and you don't even want to get out of bed, or you don't even want to go to work, and you have a brother or sister in Christ that you can text and say, hey, pray for me. And you can do those kind of things. It helps live, make life a whole lot better. We say all the time, let's do life together. So life is full of battles. We need to fight alongside other committed believers to be victorious. So that's for right here, for right now, as you're part of Revolution Church. And it's also for wherever God takes you. Make sure you're always in a Bible-believing church. So here's... Four steps to maturity. I heard several speakers talk about this week. And, 
And number one is you give direction. And this, this goes for where, where you work or where you teach at school or if we're in a church. I'm up here giving directions. Here's what you should do. Here's what the Bible says to do. And then delegation is, okay, now go do it. But because most churches in the past have skipped step three, what results is disillusionment. I know the pastor said to do this, and the Bible says this, but I try and I fail. And then I go back to church on Sunday, and the pastor says to do this, and he tells us to go do it, and then I go out and I try and I fail. And after years and years of failure, people get discouraged and they stop going to church. Because what's missing is step number three, and that's discipleship. It's one thing for Gary to give directions from the Word of God, and then say, church, go out there and do it. Be that great husband. Be that great employee. Be the best neighbor you can be to your neighborhood. And you go out there and you fail. But when you go into life group or you go into discipleship group or you meet with other believers and you talk about it and you pray about it and you encourage one another to do it, then you succeed and then you experience dedication. The most dedicated Christians you know, ask them why. And I guarantee you they will say, there was this guy who, when I was young, he taught me the Bible. Not just my pastor, but someone spent time with me going through God's word and praying with me. There was this lady, and she took me under her wing, and she showed me how to be a great wife and how to love Jesus. There, every, if you meet someone who you think is very godly, ask them, and they will tell you there was somebody in their life that made the difference. Somebody who discipled them some way, somehow. In my life, there was two men when I was young. There was Bill Bracey and Brock Boffman. And those two men spent time with me. They'd, I'd get in the car. We'd go to 7-Eleven and buy a Slurpee and a bean burrito. <laughs> Brock, that was his favorite. And, and we would just talk about the things of God as we were cleaning the church, as we were mowing the grass. Whatever we were doing, we were just talking about God. And Bill Bracey would sit down. He would take me and a few other guys out to McDonald's, buy his milkshakes, open up the Bible and talk about that. Anybody you see that you think is a godly person, I guarantee you they will tell you about somebody who is in their life. So let me tell you two things. Number one, you need somebody. Everybody in this room needs somebody who's speaking into them the word of God. Number two, you need to be that somebody to somebody else. Who are you discipling? Who's discipling you and who are you discipling? So why, let's see, I think I'm moving backwards here. Okay, yes. So, so why were these exemptions? To show what was valuable maybe? To eliminate the fearful for sure? To unite the committed? And number four, to emphasize God's power. How many times, like Gideon, where they had 30,000 ready to go to battle, and God says, no, send most of them home. Then they kept whittling it down, whittling it down, and they whittled it down to 300. Impossible, like literally impossible numbers, and they won. So when they win, what are they going to do? Oh, man, we are so good with the sword. They're like, man, God fought for us. How could 300 beat 60,000? It had to have been God. And let me challenge you to be praying for something that's so big that when God answers it, you know it was him. There's no way you could have done it. And let God work in your life and let his power be evident in every way. So that brings us to number four. We need not compromise God's plan. We need not compromise God's plan. He said, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. Now, again, this was not the seven ones that were supposed to be destroyed. This was the peripheral ones. As you're passing through and you're conquering, these ones that aren't on the destruction list, you need to go up to them and say, hey, God has promised us this land. He's here to, to discipline you and other nations, and we offer you peace. Do you understand that in history, this didn't happen? It was all bloodshed and whatever. And even, that, even if there were some sort of terms of peace, 
It really meant total enslavement, not just, not just forced work labor, but it was total enslavement and abuse and all kinds of other horrible things that went with that. And if it responds to you peaceably and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor, and others are going to work for you. And you would say, Gary, I'm, I'm having a hard time with this chapter. This just sounds weird that God would tell people to put other people in forced labor. Now think about this. Think about the way those countries were. Women were brutalized. Little children were raped constantly. It was just, if you were more powerful than someone else, you could do whatever you wanted to them. And now all of a sudden, you are given a job in Israel, but you have no choice on whether to work the job. But guess what? If you're hungry, you can walk into anybody's field and pick up any grain you want. Because the law of the land is, you leave grain behind for the poor and for the strangers. The strangers mean people who weren't originally from you. That there's a welfare system where you care for the poor. None of these countries had that. To where women are treated equally, to where murder is against the law, adultery is against the law, all these things. You are not, I would rather be a forced laborer in Israel than be free in Babylon. Do you see the difference there? This was a major upgrade. So don't think, oh my gosh, genocide and forced labor and all these things. And also think of this. And I'll talk about this more next week. This was, a lot of this was damage control, okay? God has transitioned them from being barbarians to being civilized. So this is a segue step here. Um, he said, but if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you. So in other words, you offer peace and they come out shooting and firing. Not shooting, no bullets yet back then, okay? Uh, but they start shooting, well, shooting arrows. Okay? They start, start shooting arrows and doing whatever, swinging the sword against you. Then you shall besiege it. Besieging means you surround it, you cut off roads into it, you may even block off the river that flows through it and all those things. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. If they start it with you, you finish it and you kill all the males. Again, it sounds rough, but again, think about how these people were living. But the women and the little, little ones, the livestock and everything else, all its spoils, you keep them alive. You shall take it as plunder for yourselves and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies which the Lord your God has given you. Thus shall you do to all the cities that are very far from you. Again, this isn't the seven in the land of Canaan, which are not the cities, nations here. Two different plans for the two different types of cities. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. And so those seven tribes, total destruction. Here's why. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices. And see, here's what we know when you read the other books of the Bible. They didn't obey this. They say, well, we're going to keep these people alive. We're going to do this. And we're going to marry these women. We're going to do whatever. And guess what? It wasn't even a generation before they were offering their own children as human sacrifices. You see, the lesson, what did we learn from 1 Corinthians? That all these things were written for our examples that we would learn from them. You know what we learned from this? You crush sin. Boom. You wipe it out. You don't put a little bit over here and tolerate a little bit here and there. If you've got a problem with alcohol, you don't keep a bottle over here just a little bit every now and then. Sin will creep into your life and sin will become explosive. And that's what happened in this situation. It says that they have done for their gods and then and so you sin against the Lord your God. Remember, what were they doing? They were offering their children as sacrifices. And if you let one of them live, which they all deserve to die and God was using them as as executioners to, to do capital punishment, if you let one or two of them live, guess what they're going to talk about? You know, the crop is really bad this year. When I was a little girl, we'd offer our children to bail, and next thing you know, it was raining, and the forest grew, and the crops grew, and everything was great. Maybe you should try that. 
And that's how it all started, with just a little bit here and a little bit there. And that's the way sin works. So the lesson we learned by Israel's example is that we can't compromise with our big three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You don't bargain with them. You don't tolerate a little bit. You wipe it out, and you, you get those things out of your life so you can live sanctified and holy. So let's review these points. We need not fear because God is with us. We need God's leaders to encourage us. We need to commit it alongside of us. We need not compromise God's plan for us. And would you read this last one with me? We need common sense to guide us. Let's do that again. We need common sense to guide us. So here's where the common sense comes in. When you besiege a city for a long time, so you've surrounded it, you've cut off supplies, and you're trying to basically work them down to where they're hungry and say, okay, we surrender, and you're making war against it, you shall not destroy its trees. Interesting. Here we have an environmental statement here, and wielding an axe against them. Now, why would anybody do that? Well, again, some, most armies of the world this day, during this time, had a scorched earth policy. When they went into your land, they destroyed everything just for the sake of destroying. They burnt down everything. They cut down everything. And God's like, why would you want to do that? And he's basically saying, what did the trees do to you? He said, you should eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human? Well, I'm not punished. I'm here to punish trees that they should be besieged by you. I mean, here's just common sense is the way this chapter ends. And he says, only the trees that you know are trees for food. You may dis- they're not for trees or food. You may cut down, but you're cutting them down for a purpose so that you can build siege works. In other words, when you're building ramps to climb the walls of the city or you're building you know, things out there in the field to protect you from their arrows or whatever you're doing, if you're using it for warfare, you're using it for a constructive purpose, cut down the right trees. Some bear fruit, some don't. So what are we going to do? We're going to be smart. You're going to use common sense and cut down the right ones. And this, this really brings an, a balance to environmentalism. You know, there was a day you know, years ago when America didn't care about the environment. I mean, there were literally lakes in Michigan that were on fire because there was so much pollution and oil flowing around that they were burning there. And and there was places that were not drinkable, things like that. God gave us this planet to take care of it. So should we be environmentalists? Yes, to the degree that we are the ones taking care of the planet. But some people take environmentalism too far and say, oh, no, we're not in charge. We're just little bitty-bitty humans. Let Mother Nature do its thing. You know what happens when Mother Nature does its thing on your yard? This is what your yard looks like. If you let your yard go and don't do anything, does your yard look prettier or uglier? I mean, this is just common sense, right? And yet people will say this all the time. Just let nature do its thing. Don't interfere. But you know what? When man gets involved, this is what it looks like. Which one would you rather have? By the way, this is Longwood Gardens. This was like 10 minutes from my house growing up. Longwood Gardens, remember that, Charles? Okay. Um, we, God told man to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over nature. We are supposed to manage nature. We are supposed to manage cattle and animals. We're supposed to manage trees and flowers and fruit. We're supposed to be involved in them because when man gets involved and does right, it looks better. When man neglects it, it looks worse. This is why out in the West, the environmentalists, the wackos have said, don't touch the dead wood. Let nature do its thing. Because what, what the people used to, what the foresters used to do is go out there and, and tall all the dead wood out. But now they're saying, don't do that. And here's what the forests used to look like. They would clean them up. 
they would pile up the dead wood, they'd haul it off to make paper and things like that, and they'd keep the trees spaced out and looking fresh. But now that they're not hauling out the dead wood anymore, guess what's happening? The forest fires are getting worse and worse and worse. And every summer, more and more people die and more and more people's homes burn down because the environmentalists won't let us take the dead wood out. They're like, let nature do its thing. When nature does its things by itself, without man's help, it gets uglier. When man gets involved, things look prettier and look a whole lot better. So it's all about common sense to guide us. And that's why Moses throws these in here. He said, so here in Deuteronomy 20, it's talking about warfare. And it says, we, we have all declared war on God, and we're all the enemies of God. You see, put yourself in the position of the Canaanites, or the, the Hittites, or the Perizzites, or the Termites, any one of those people that were condemned to death. These are the enemies of God. But you know what? That's you and me. We've all said, God, you're not going to run my life. I'm going to run my own life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to believe what I want to believe. And I'm going to behave what I want to behave. I'm going to just do whatever I think is right in that situation. But you know what, though? Be thankful God has not had a scorched earth policy on us. Think about that. God did destroy the, the planet with water. And he said, I'll never do it again. Right now, he's saying, I'm holding back on scorched earth. But there will be a day when the Bible says God will destroy the heavens and earth with fire. But he's holding back right now. He's being merciful. God accepts terms of peace with us. He's saying, hey, you, you want to go to war? We can go to war. But if I'm offering you terms of peace. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. He said, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 soldiers to meet him who comes against them with 20,000. He's going to say, wait a minute. They got double what we have. Do I even stand a chance? Maybe I should do something different. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends out a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Hey, I know you've got 20,000. We've only got 10,000. We don't want to go to war. We don't want to fight with you. We will surrender without a battle. We're willing to surrender to you. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Think about what he's talking about here. He's saying you're in a war against God. There's no way you can win. So you can either surrender to Jesus Christ and say, I give you all that I have, everything that I have. I give you all my choices in life, all my money, all my decisions, who I marry, where I go to college, all those things, they're yours, God. I surrender. That's not a popular type of Christianity today. Today it's, hey, you want to go to heaven? Pray this prayer? Great. Okay, now go do whatever you want because you're on your way to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you've declared war on God and God will destroy you unless you go out to him and say, I surrender. What are the terms of peace? But here's the thing. It's better to be at peace with God because he's going to bless you. He's not going to enslave you. He sets you free. He says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Romans 5.10 says, for while, if while we were what? Enemies. We were reconciled, which means we made peace with God by the death of his son. See, God, rather than killing us like we deserved, he allowed his own son to die in our place so that we could be at peace with God and no longer war. Now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you said, I surrender? Have you waved the white flag and given your life to him? I would like to ask everybody to do something for me, if you would. I just want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. 
And I want you just to block out any distractions of anybody or anything else around you. Even if you're at home watching online, I want you to just have an attitude of prayer right now. And I want to ask you the most important question anybody will ever ask you. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Have you surrendered your life to him and made him the king of your life? He's offering terms of peace this morning. He, instead of punishing you for your sins, he took it upon his own body on the cross. If you're a believer in Christ, I want you to pray for the lost right now. Pray that God would open hearts and open minds. But if you are not sure that you're saved, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you can do so today. You can face him in war in the future, or you can surrender to him today because he loves you. He's not trying to conquer your life because he wants to destroy you. He wants to take your life so that he can make you all that you can be and make your life amazing with purpose and fulfillment and true joy and peace. What other person is offering you that? Those terms of peace. If you would like to be saved, I want you to just pray a prayer. Something like this. And the prayer does not save you. It's faith in Christ that saves you. But you could communicate with Jesus something like this. Lord Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I give it all to you because you gave it all for me on the cross. You're the one that suffered, was beaten, and died. And more importantly, you're the one who rose again victorious, the king of the universe. So Lord, I, I give my life to you. Thank you for forgiving all my sins. I trust you to save me right now. In your name I pray, amen. If, you, if you've made that decision, I would like for you to, to let me know about that. I'd like to help you take your next steps as a new child of God. So, um, all right, questions. Let's see if I have any here. At the time Moses is speaking, hasn't only one and a half tribes come into their land on the near side of the Jordan? They would be the only ones at the time with houses and vineyards. They had come into their inheritance, so I imagine they would be more tempted to stay in their land than to go across to war. I think that's accurate. You probably know more than me, whoever's asking the question, because um, off the top of my head, I'm not remembering that. But yes, there would be the temptation to stay and actually, remember last week how God said there'd be three, it was a couple weeks ago, three cities of refuge. He said, but if you go farther and you trust me and obey me, I'll give you room for three more cities. Well, they never did the three more cities because they weren't obedient. So yes, the temptation was always, what was their temptation originally? Let's stay in Egypt. Wasn't their food better in Egypt? And then we get a you know, good night's sleep and all that stuff in Egypt. And like, what, are you crazy? Then went in the wilderness, they're like, we just want to stay here. And so they wandered for 40 years. So yes, there's always a temptation to stay where you are and not to advance. I hope that the, answers the gist of your question. In a history book, it said that the Garden of Eden is in the Middle East area, able to visit it today. Okay, so yes, it was in the Middle East. In fact, the Bible tells us it was between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which are still there. But if you study geography over time, rivers drift. They move, okay? Because if you ever notice, a river does this, it winds because it's always pushing against a bank and what, what, um, what would you call it, eroding it, and then it pushes against other bank. And so you'll actually see a river that was like this that all of a sudden will go like this and begin to straighten out more and more. So rivers tend to drift with time and with weather and geological structure changes. So in other words, the exact location is not probably even there anymore. It might even be underwater. So, but yes, the Bible tells us exactly where it was and it was the, the cradle of civilization. You can even study world history and figure out everything that seemed to start there. 
And archaeologists don't want to give credit to the Bible for it being that. They just say, well, it's just a legendary story. But uh, I, believe it's lit I believe in literal Adam and Eve. You know why? Because Jesus did. Jesus referred to Adam and Eve as actual people. And so if he takes them literally and he rose from the dead, I think his opinion matters more than anybody else. What is a humanist? What is a humanist? Good. Humanists believe that we're the ultimate authority. And basically, humanism has been determined by the Supreme Court as a religion because basically we worship humanity. We believe we can solve our own problems. And so, and others like that are human, which is not a humanitarian. Humanitarian means doing good things for humankind. Humanism is believing that, that the ultimate solution for all of man's problems is man and not God. So that's what humanism is. Good question. Psalm 46 mentions making vows to God. Is this still a requirement, making vows to God? And what's an example? This is a tough subject, and I, I, it's hard. I don't really have a great answer for it. I do know this. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees because Pharisees took vows and went on steroids with them, just took them way too far. And Jesus tried to reel that back in, back in by saying, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Just if you say yes, you don't have to say, and I swear on a stack of Bibles, or I vow that if this doesn't come true, God strike me dead. You don't have to do all that stuff. Just if you say yes, mean it. And if you say no, mean it. And just mean what you say and say what you mean. Um, I don't know that that, but, but I know there's obviously exceptions. So Jesus wasn't trying to destroy all vows. Because obviously we take wedding vows, and I'm all for that. In fact, the Bible endorses that wedding is not a piece of paper, although that's included. It's a public covenant that I make a vow to you to love you till death do us part. It's not a contract like you do your part, I'll do mine. It's a covenant that I vow to love you no matter what. And so that's a vow. So there are good vows. I think that they're meant to be few. In fact, in that same Psalm, if I'm not mistaken, it says, let your words be few. So you be really hesitant to make vows. And if you do, keep them. Okay. Will God answer our praying? Will God answer our prayers? Okay. That's so simple yet profound, huh? Okay. So the answer, and I don't want to give a preacherism. The answer is yes, but it may not always be yes. He, in other words, you may say, God, I want to marry her. And God's answer to your prayer is no. I've got someone better. <laughs> or no, I want you to be single for a while or forever. So God answers your prayers, but it's not may always what you want. And it may not, you may not get the answer when you want. There may be silence for a while before you really know what God wants in that situation. But yes, I believe that God answers prayer. And James, for whoever asks this, I would recommend you read the book of James, chapter 1 and 2. And it talks about why our prayers aren't answered. And that we have not because we ask not or we ask amiss. We ask wrongly because we just want it for ourselves and for our flesh. Any others? Yes. Okay. What is the difference between predestination and free will? That's a, that's a great thing. So predestination is that God predetermined or destined those who would be saved and those who would be lost. And free will is that you have a choice whether you want to be saved or lost. Okay. And both of them look like, wow, how could those two both co coexist? My little brain can't comprehend it, and really nobody's can. Th theologians have been debating this for thousands of years. 
but I, I've, I've said this a hundred times, but if you're, whoever's asking this, it's for you and, and for everybody else. You can, you're going, other believers, you're going to get this question, and this, this, um, this is so you know how to give an answer. Um, is Jesus 100% God? Yes. The Bible clearly teaches it. Is he 100% man? Yes. Wait a minute. You can't be 100% of two things. Jesus can. <laughs> My little brain can't comprehend that. So the two are reconciled because they're both taught in the Bible, even though we can't explain it. And how God can say, you choose this day whom you will serve and whosoever will may come. And at the same time says, I chose you before the foundations of the world. I don't know how to explain it, but it's true. And uh, someone once illustrated this way, that when we walk into the gates of heaven on the outside, it's going to say, whosoever will may come in. And once we get on the inside, on the back, it says, I knew you would. <laughs> you know, so uh, um, they both exist at the same time. They are different, which you said, what's the difference? So the difference is God's choosing and you're choosing, and yet both coexist. This is a long one. All right, go for it. I've been reading through the Old Testament and all the rules and details about animal sacrifices and offerings. Do present-day Jews follow these rules and regulations today? I know they observe aspects of things like Passover, Feast of Trumpets, etc. I know we do not practice animal sacrifice for sins because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. Are there things like Jewish holidays that are okay for us as Christians to celebrate? Um, let me answer the first part. Jews, right after Christ's crucifixion, stopped sacrificing lambs because a bunch of them, not the majority, but a bunch of them believed and realized he was the Lamb of God, so we don't have to sacrifice lambs anymore. And then other, but then also because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they didn't have a place to sacrifice. And to this day, they still don't. And if you ask them, they don't really know why. We know why. It's because Jesus fulfilled it. Now, um, should Christians learn from, old, from Jewish holidays? Yes. In fact, I really encourage you to go do a Passover Seder with a Jewish family or with a bunch of believers, or especially Messianic Jews, Jews who have accepted Christ as Savior, which is increasingly more and more of them. Okay, and that'd be a good thing. But, you know, should we do the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Tabernacles, all that stuff? I think we should learn from them. If you want to do them for fun, great. But are we under regulations to do them? No, absolutely not. That all those things were types and shadows of Jesus coming. And Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. So Jesus says, I'm all those festivals in me. I'm your Sabbath. I'm your Passover. I'm your Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm your tabernacle. I'm, I'm everything to you. Good question. Are Christmas and Easter pagan holidays? Okay, so this one we get often. Um, and their roots, yes, they certainly were. And what happened was when the Catholic Church spread, they, um, when they came into pagan villages, they wanted to convert them to Christianity. And some of them actually truly converted in spite of what they may have been taught. And they wanted, rather than destroying their pagan holidays, they said, well, let's just re repurpose it. Let's make the purpose of this holiday, instead of worshiping the sun, let's worship the son of God. Instead of worshiping, you know, these idols, let's worship the birth of Christ. Instead of worshiping fertility goddesses, let's celebrate the resurrection. And they basically, they substituted. I don't actually have a problem with that. Because what, what does the Bible say? He, take, he makes good things out of ashes. What are ashes? You can't do anything with ashes, but he turns into something good. He turns our, our weeping into joy. He takes bad things and turns them into good things. The very fact that many of you ladies in this room have crosses around your neck. Wait a minute. 
would you put a uh, electric chair around your neck? Would you put a gun around your neck or a sword around your neck? No, you wouldn't do that because those are evil things. I mean, those are things that, but God took the cross, something ugly and horrific, and turned it into something beautiful, and now we can wear jewelry. So if you have a problem with Easter and Christmas, you probably would have a problem with what's wearing crosses. And if you want to trace, the question is, is it still pagan? When you celebrated at Easter, did, any, did your neighbors go, oh my gosh, look at them worshiping pagan gods. Did they think that? No. no. Most people don't even know where they came from. It's what does it mean today? And the very fact that you wear this ring on this finger is pagan. The fact that today is Sunday, S-U-N, that's pagan. That tomorrow is Monday when they worship the moon, that's pagan. Throwing rice at a wedding, it's pagan. Wearing a veil at a wedding, it's pagan. You can't do anything nowadays, it's pagan. That in its origin. The question is, what are, you, what are you intending it to mean today? And if your purposes today are pure, then it doesn't matter as long as the thing itself... Now, if you were sacrificing babies, that's obviously a bad practice. Even if you want to say, well, we're sacrificing, sacrificing babies to Jesus now instead of Baal. No, you're, it's a wrong practice for the wrong reason. But here you have a neutral practice for the right reason. And in fact, Paul... Just Sorry to give a long answer here. Paul talked about... Some young Christians were... There was meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul's like, what's the big deal? It's meat. It doesn't matter where it was. It's what is it now? It's meat that God gave you. So apply that to Easter and Christmas. And most of the people that I know that are against Christmas, they're just tightwads and don't want to spend money on gifts. No joke. Go ahead. That's it. That's it? Was there any up here in the... Um, let me do this here. We probably ought to stop anyway. Yeah, there's none up here. Okay, cool. Good job. Let's give Sophia a hand for helping us. All right, let's stand, and we're going to be dismissed in prayer. Uh, David Garcia, would you come up here and dismiss us in prayer, please, brother? Appreciate it. Do you notice he was playing bass today? Yeah, he, he got kicked off the drums. He wasn't behaving. No, just kidding. Just kidding. All right, pray for us, brother. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your salvation for your love, your mercy. I pray for each family, God. I pray that you take care of us. I pray that the youth, the kids, Lord, have a good time at bowling. Um, God, bless this week. I pray for each family, for each marriage. I pray that you take care of us, protect us. In everything we do, God, help us to have you first in everything, at the center of everything, at the center of our lives, at the center of our marriages, at the center of our families at the center of everything we do, God, because it's because of you why we could do what we do, to you be the glory, to you be the honor and praise. I pray you take care of us in everything we do, God. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.